All right. Hello, everybody. We are back with Social Night at WDBM, the place to talk about all things pop culture and good in the realm of TV, film, and otherwise. We are going to be talking about Patriot on Amazon Prime. We're going to talk about the second season. I'm here today, George McNeil, with my two good friends, Maddie and Matt. How are you guys doing? What's up? I'm good friend number one, Matt. I also watched Patriot season two. Let's, let's talk about it. How's it going, Maddie? <laughs> I am good friend number two, and that ranking is accurate. Uh, <laughs> I am here also to talk about Patriot Season 2, which I finished a couple days ago. I am excited. What about you, George? Oh, I'm beyond excited. Uh, as you folks may have heard, if you had listened to our Season 1 discussion, we are all huge fans of Patriot. I myself am a bit religiously obsessed with it. Also, spoiler warning, if you have not seen Patriot Season 1 or Season 2, you might want to go watch those before we talk about what we're going to talk about today. But yeah, I'm thrilled to talk about this show. Maddie, you said you just finished it. How are you feeling right now? It's taken a few days to process it. So I'm less sad than I was, but I thought it was so good. I can't wait to actually like rewatch it because I feel like I'm going to notice so many things that I didn't notice the first watch. Yeah, and I, that's actually the same sort of thing that happened to me. Like the rewatching this show, it's very rewatchable. Like there's so many qualities to it that you can look back at what characters were doing earlier and it just makes it so much more fun to watch. Matt, how about you? You just finished it as well. Yeah. The day when I got to the final episode, I like I knew I was going to see a couple of old friends that night and I planned out just enough time that I could finish the episode and then have like five minutes to drive over and see these people. And I wound up being about 30 to 40 minutes late because I was just sitting there trying to like process the end of this show. <gasps> and uh <laughs> took me like a whole probably 45 minutes before I was able to speak more than like a sentence at a time because I was still just thinking about the ending um good good times did your headspace recover when you met your friends or yeah 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 yeah. I mean good. it took a minute <laughs> <laughs> no yeah for real that's why one thing I think we all talked about beforehand is that season two compared to season one is notably a lot darker not only in its much more blue color palette, but I mean, thematically, there's a lot of heavy stuff this season. Was there anything in particular that stood out to you both about how this season was different than season one in a specific way? I would have to agree. It was just like a lot more intensity, I guess, and just the way that you saw like more emotionally than physically, I feel. Because, you know, the first season had a lot of deaths and action scenes which season two has that too, but I think it was more of you got to see the effect of everybody's actions more so. And that just like really was drawn out in season two. Uh, there were two big things for me that separated this from season one. The first one is the fact that this season takes place over such a short time period compared to season one. Like, I don't know, there'll be some like animes I'll watch or something where the first like 40 episodes are like a year and then the last 40 episodes are just like the final battle and it's just half the show contributed to one single scene essentially and that's kind of what this felt like but not in a bad way in a good way the other thing is i feel like whereas season one really really focused on every single character uh season two seemed to hone in a lot more specifically on john and tom and it still had characterization for a lot of other people but they 
I don't know, just didn't play as big a role as the main characters this time around. No, I think you're right. I think a majority of the characters who were more integral to season one, you know, speaking maybe about Dennis and Ed specifically, take on more of a supportive role in season two. Because, yeah, it, it really hones in on John, Tom, and I'd also say uh, Aget comes more to the forefront this season in regards to, like, her personal motivation for catching them. I'd probably add Alice to that, too, now that I think about it. Oh, yeah, completely. Alice is huge this season. Because, yeah, from the first episode, she finally sees what John truly does. Let's talk about that first episode. Well, like, speaking about that airport scene in particular, how'd that make you both feel? (laughs) I felt so uncomfortable because, like, as we all know, that's the scene where uh, John really just, like, I feel like he just gets into his hardwired mode and just goes into action, puts all of his feelings out of it, and hurts this lady who is a get sister and fully like knocks her unconscious and takes a gets child so it's just very intense and alice is like this is the first time she's really seeing john for what he does and seeing him right. in action rather than just the effects of how that affects his emotions and everything and so she's like oh okay this is actually what he does this is what he's forced to do and she's trying to car- compartmentalize that you know that's just like super intense to me, uh, some of that scene kind of feels like almost a manifestation of John's guilt for what he does, because after he meets up with Alice at the airport and she finds out what he does, she's like, I still love you, though. And I think a part of John maybe feels like he doesn't deserve that or feels like she shouldn't and decides that here he's going to show her exactly why she shouldn't be so dismissive of what he does. That's an interesting take. <laughs> I um. I don't think, yeah, I don't think he doesn't with malicious intent to it. Like, I don't think yeah. he wants to scare or harm her. It's just. But he doesn't really try to hide what he's doing from her either. Yeah. And I think part of that comes from necessity in that the whole time of the episode when he puts together that in order to have any sort of leverage over a get, he needs to essentially play a trump card and pursue Mina, her daughter, on the train. Mm-hmm. And then when push comes to shove and he needs to essentially take Mina his hands are tied because he asks himself like, how am I going to do this in an airport? So then he brings Alice in on it to kind of represent this, this family dynamic so that, you know, it doesn't look strange at all. And there's the dog and like, so that the, it meets the family image in the airport so they can, they can exfiltrate, I guess. But it's a very, uh, it's very sad and bleak (laughs) for the rest of the season. And is this the episode where Birdbath finally gets his dimes to because yeah. <laughs> birdbath basically uh goes to the french bank and asks for a bunch of dimes but of course they don't have dimes because this is in america but so on teams yeah it's on teams and then he's like um i don't know how this will like i don't know if it will knock her out or not i'm trying to hit her with this like sock full of dimes but mm-hmm. i don't know i what does he say exactly to like say he has to like test run it I haven't had a dry run with these. Yeah. yeah. He, he's all concerned about if he if he hits her and it doesn't knock her out, like she's just gonna scream gonna hit her. Yeah. And she's just gonna turn around, and say ow, and arrest me. Yeah. Like, you you gotta develop a touch. I have a I have a good touch for it. I, yeah. Sometimes, yeah. And then so he tries it out on himself, just like knock and then accidentally like knocks himself out. Birdbath is so funny and for that. I love him so much. 
that's a great opening for the season too, because when you foil season one, you know, that with the opening that where John pushes Steve in front of the bus, here instead you have Birdbath st- talking to a teller about American Dimes versus Santimes, and he like juggles them in his hand, and then he just groans like "fuck," and um, like it, it's just another instance of the series being finding its own unique voice and way to kind of lure you in or make you think like, well, why does he need these dimes? Like, where is this episode going? And yeah. I just, this show is unlike any other. I think it's kind of funny that uh, season one lures you in with like shock, right? From the opening scene, season two kind of lures you in with humor though. But then season two winds up being way bleaker and way more like just dark and upsetting overall. Yeah. And I, I was going to say, I think that uh, they have like birdbath having his like tell all to agents later on also playing you know mm-hmm. they have that like back and forth and I think it's important in one of the, like the themes kind of where he's talking about why he was getting the dimes for this and why he was helping John out and he was like the kid looked like he needed help yeah I feel like that's how everyone approaches John they just view him as like this puppy who needs help and they're just like willing to forgive him for what he has to do and like help him no matter what I think that speaks to kind of the theme of this whole season because season one we talked about last last time was really about the uh, I don't know the the way that plans are never as simple as they are made to seem and that people are much more nuanced and multifaceted than like a simple description or plan can you know describe and then this season's all about how we as people have necessary and basic needs that we need to fulfill. Uh, but you know we can't always do it by ourselves like we need we need support and we need love and we need friends and i think that's kind of the calling card of this season is that john finds support and friends much more than he did in season 1 with such a, <clears throat> a a strange collective of characters that in you know goes from random piping engineers to to his brother to a veterinarian to it's just all over the place. And, but I think that's really what, again, is so charming about where this season goes is just how important your friends are. I think that's cool. Yeah. I feel like there's hardly a scene where he's alone doing something by himself. And even if it is like, there's people right behind him saying like, no, we'll come with you. We're not going to let you do this alone. And like, they always try to like help him, even if it is after the fact as well. Yeah. That's another big, uh, contrast in season two that I forgot to mention earlier is that season one has the whole like secret identity thriller thing going on but by mid-season two pretty much every single character knows who John is and what he does and there's no like there's no double identity like Clark Kent Superman thing going on exactly even the guy from HR knows who he is that's what's um a little the first time I watched it it was a bit difficult for me to suspend my disbelief with that part of it in that everyone from the company essentially knows who he is and yet they give him almost an unflinching and unyielding support like everyone kind of rallies around him and celebrates especially during the bachelor party which is you know about ed getting married but it's really about john and you know his friends and that needed catharsis what what was weird for me the first time was thinking wait why are they all so quick to to rally around him and help him because now they know that, I mean, for his job, he pushed an innocent man in front of a bus. He's done a lot of really bleak things, and yet they all support him. So 
what did you both think of that? Like, what do you think draws people to John? Uh, that's a tough question, but I just want to say the one that was the hardest for me to wrap my mind around was how quickly Leslie forgave John and how quickly they got on good terms. Especially because I feel like John just messed up Leslie's progression so, so much because like at the point where we saw Leslie, he was calling his son ready to make amends with his son. He was sober for however many days. And then John shoots him in the face. So then he ends up going back on painkillers and then getting addicted to or having a relapse with cocaine again. And so like, and then he ends up going to France and visiting his son and his son sees that he's not sober and is like, you have to get out. So I feel like Leslie was really messed with the most out of like everyone just because he messed up his progression so much. And then he, once he learned that, like what he was, was doing, what his job is, he really was just like, well, all right, that makes sense. Okay. (laughs) <laughs> and like really turned around from that and like got on board immediately and was ready to just help John. I, maybe one specific detail of that is when Leslie first comes to Paris, I believe he was also going to be interviewed um, by the detectives, yeah. but then Tom intercepts him and then explains the situation to him. And I, th- I think for me, I guess to answer my own question, like what draws people to John is that John's I think people empathize with how John's hands are tied in a strange way with just the the notion of you know he he does what he does in part for his family um and in part because it's a bit of the only life he's ever really known and been taught to embrace and I mean Tom is also a bit of a a master salesman talking about how it's it's for the good of the country and how it's you know it's important work and that Cantor Wally is like a legitimate threat that needs to be stopped so Maybe that helps other characters empathize and put into perspective, but uh, yeah, I, you're both right. It's, it is a little jarring how they're all so quick to forgive, but maybe that also speaks to how, despite their flaws, they're all very honest and, and good people. On the other hand, do you think maybe some of it, like people being drawn to Tom, could have to do with people not liking Tom as well, like wanting to protect him after seeing... Oh, wanting to protect John from Tom? Because like Ed and... Yeah, Ed and like Alice and Dennis, of course, see, maybe not Dennis, but see what's going on and want to help John. Um, Leslie doesn't really come around until Tom talks to him, but maybe instead of being persuaded by Tom, it was kind of the opposite. And he, he just wound up feeling bad for John after seeing what Tom is really like. I think he kind of maybe viewed John after like learning everything as like him being a father figure to John in that sense because you know I think he was really like looking for that relationship still just because he didn't have that with his own son Mm -hmm. anymore so maybe he viewed it as that and really just like wanted to help John because he couldn't help his own son yeah no I I think you're both right and 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 thinking about even their last encounter you know in the in the final episode which we'll get to later you know John's asking to shore up his piping and and like land the Denon deal and all Leslie says is just like I want your old man to get you home so yeah there's 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 a camaraderie and a trust there and just it's it's just really really nice I like it a lot so we've we've talked a lot about John and uh you know like what what draws people to him and I think a core analysis of this season is whether or not John is redeemable because many times even when a get is pursuing John 
she's willing to forgive him of his transgressions because she realizes that he is only the sword. She's going after the hand, which is Tom. But looking again further onto the season, there's so many conversations about whether John is turning into a ghoul or whether he's disappearing. Do you both think that John is capable of redemption? I do. I think I think the final episode of the show, which I'm sure we'll get into whether it had like a happy ending or not. I think the final episode of the show at least wants us to think that he could be redeemed with the parallels between him and James, the British intelligence officer that was in the like torture box with him. Yeah, I think he definitely, like the way that the show leaves it, they leave it up to you to decide if he is redeemable, but I think it's leaning more towards, yes, he can be redeemed just because we've seen the way that he's acted and like why his actions have had the consequences they've had. And, you know, you're along this ride with him the whole time. So you really want him to redeem himself, especially like you hear his thoughts within his songs. So I think that's what really turns it around for me. One, one thought of that though, is like, what do you think it'll take for him to find that, that catharsis and redemption? Because last time we talked a little bit about uh, like character archetypes and like how they there's a lot of foils in this show specifically I'm thinking of the the Kandahar family and the Taverners so you have in the I think second to last episode it's revealed that the man who who ran over John at the end of the first season was actually the patriarch of the Kandahar family I forget his first name and he's like the he's like the Tom for for Iran and there's this whole conversation between Tom and this man in the hospital where they're kind of talking about John's destructive tendencies and how he's he's been spiraling and then when that character comes up again it's when John is about to take out Canterwally and Tom calls him off and then John turns around and it's the the same man the Kandahar man who raises a gun at him in self-defense and then John shoots him and dies so my here's my symbolism talk so that John is essentially killing the Tom of a different role. So does John's redemption require that he be free of his role and free of his family? Yeah, I, I, that's what I took away. I think Tom has to be held accountable for his actions in order for John to be free. Yeah, I definitely think that as well, just because you watch Tom throughout the season and he really starts to begin to understand why his son is crumbling and like slowly just like turning into sadness and madness and then you see that when like in one of the episodes he is going into the field with John and then he's like wait aren't you nervous and then John is just like no I do this all the time like I kill people all the time or I like hurt people all the time and then that's when Tom really is starting to get it that his actions on his son really do have consequences that will stay with him forever so I think that's really important and I think in order for him to be okay it might require time away from Tom especially and I think with that too you just mentioned you know they go onto the field together and Tom remarks in his in his 2017 deposition which I want to get to later how he is the type of man who in that situation he counts the number of blows it takes to knock Martin Tidy at the liquor store unconscious and how his stomach is turned by that. So then he, as he and John run away, like Tom starts to show like that remorse. He's like, Oh my God, son. And then Cantor Wally drives by and Tom's instantly like, 
go, go, go. And like to resume the mission. And the same thing happens in the finale when the money is gone at first and John, Tom calls John off and is saying, well, you know, let's like, we'll weather whatever, we'll, we'll weather whatever blows or whatever he says that they'll just, they'll make deal and they'll move on and try to recover and go home. But then the bag comes back and it's instantly back to the mission. So I don't know. It's, it's messy. Speaking of the 2017 deposition, which we saw in season one, but we see a lot more in season two. Um, I mean, we see Tom set up after like it's essentially Tom's hearing. It looks like for whatever happened, but then you see all these other characters. Like you see the cops from Milwaukee, you see Ichabod, you see Birdbath. What do you both make of that scenario? Like what is happening in that situation? I think that might just be them answering for why the mission didn't get completed. And like they have to interview like every single person as to like to figure out why nothing ever happened. But it's interesting that John or was Alice even shown doing an interview? No, she was not. No, I, I think it's interesting that John is never seen giving an interview in that deposition. It's just everybody else who was a part of it. Like what Tom said, weathering the blows and kind of explaining himself away for why the mission didn't get completed like it was supposed to. Like it was supposed to be A to B. And instead, there's like a million different things that happened. Yeah, it definitely seems like it's supposed to be some sort of like court hearing or something for Tom being possibly charged with whatever happened during the mission. But I feel like that might be a red herring. And there are like other things it could be. I'm just not totally sure what yet. That's one thing that I think, talking about the ending of this show, there's a lot of things that are left ambiguous a because i mean i think the production was hoping for a season three but based on interviews and other things i've heard it sounds like the amazon prime ceo changed over two three times during production of this show so you know the the support they had for season one they didn't have for season two and i think that just made it like a really tumultuous production cycle so they tried to give this season ending a lot of closure but there's a lot of things that are left ambiguous. And the first one I wanted to ask about was John and Alice. Uh, because, yeah, Alice plays a much more central role in this season, but by and, and stands up to Tom quite a bit and is really advocating for John, you know, because she herself says so, so many times that John is disappearing and stands up against not only Tom, but also Bernice, John's mom. But by the end of the show, Alice and John are kind of going on separate paths because Alice turned over Tom to a get. Do you guys think that uh, John and Alice would recuperate in the future or what happened there? I think yes, because Alice has been there for John and that she's seen who he is and still stood by him. I think Mm -hmm. in turn that John will stand by Alice for kind of outing both of them to a get and the police. Just that like, no matter what, they like weathered through it all. And I feel like they truly do kind of like understand each other in that way. I think there could have been some foreshadowing with uh, Tom and Bernice and their uh, weird relationship to each other. I wasn't totally clear on that either. Are they separated or are they just like... I, I don't know if they're formally divorced or if they just live separate from one another. But in season one, John Tom mentions that he was married for 42 years which implies that they're separated. And then uh, Bernice also says that she hasn't seen John for, like, I think, 14 months, and it's part of their quote-unquote arrangement. Okay, yeah. So that could be some foreshadowing that John and Alice could be on a rocky path too, but I think they have a 
much, much more chance of working things out than Tom and Bernie's, especially with the, uh, the fact that like John says he knew she was going to turn in his father and she was doing all of that to protect John in the first place. That's a very good point. And I think on the subject of Bernice and Tom, the last we see of them is at Ed's uh, wedding. But Ed, Ed is the most like dead serious Rick that we've ever seen him in that he, the night before, helped John knock out Sophie with uh, the bicycle and that he has a cut in his hand and he's like really upset that John isn't there. And he, he blatantly asks, did I help John kill someone last night? So should there have been a future for this show? I think Ed has one of the kind of bleakest endings that there is and that he's kind of struggling with his own culpability in his role because he was on this path to quit being a congressman and just hang out with, with Ephraim and his wife and just go search for buried treasure. But he's very somber at the end of the show. So what did you both think was the future for Ed? Oh man, I think that if there were to be a third and final season, I think Ed would be the character in the last couple of episodes that somehow tragically dies. And that's what pushes John over the edge uh, one way or the other. That's my, my personal guess. That's an interesting take. Oh. Yeah, that was dark, <laughs> but yeah. I think there's truth there. I was just, my perfect third season is Dennis and Edward searching for buried treasure together and making movies uh, mm. like they did in this season when uh, they fake got kidnapped. Right. <laughs> it's just really them making uh, second Reservoir Dogs. So yeah. uh, that's my perfect season. <laughs> No, nothing with John, nothing with Tom. It's just the whole season is just Dennis and Ed making movies. And <laughs> yeah, maybe it's like one mention of like, oh, how's John doing? Oh, he's in rehab. Like, he's doing good. He's, got, he's going to therapy. I'd love to hear that. And be like, oh, where's Tom? Oh, he's in the nursing home. He's fine. <laughs> That's my perfect third season. <laughs> I'm glad you mentioned uh, their movie making sequence. Because I learned this recently as like a weird fact is that Ed being kidnapped was a studio note. Like at the end of the first season, they're like, well, we need like we want Ed to be kidnapped (laughs) and very much in tune with the show. They really wanted to find their own way of having him kidnapped that made sense to the story. So then they just retcon it in season two by saying, no, Ed kidnapped himself to get the money to throw it in the river. (laughs) Yeah. And, like, I love how John knows exactly what he's doing. And it's like, right. no, he's just trying to get the money to throw it in the river to make sure I'm okay. <laughs> right. And it was, like, surprising, but it was just so perfectly in character that, like, you don't even question it. Yeah. And it's just Dennis in a mask being like, give me the money. <laughs> right, exactly. So I, I love how the show, like, finds these creative workarounds to – you know, the challenges that they're given not only, you know, narratively, but also from the studio. And a second one I found out was Cantor Wally, like, needed to have a security force <laughs> so that John would have some sort of threat against him. And that manifests in the Dutch boys and the action boys who are uh, men who wear very tight khaki sh- suits and shorts with rolled up black socks and, like, loafers and then terrible haircuts. So what did you both think of the Dutch boys? <laughs> Um, I thought they were kind of hot. 
Um, <laughs> no, that was just, I just thought it was funny and comical that they all looked very similar to one another. And that was like their thing is that they not look attractive so that they can't get distracted. Yeah. Uh, they just made me think of the like Tyler, the creator, Igor character. Um, but yeah. Something I didn't think about until today is that there's actually some parallels between them and John, I think, too, because they're also just degrading themselves like this for Kantar Wally. Um, it's a lot funnier than what John is going through, but it's they're not just a, like, one-off joke. No, you're right. Uh, and the way that, yeah, John's way is definitely not as comical because John sort of is just constantly stoic and uh, serious throughout the whole show, which they actually talk about in a very clever aside using the one of the cops from the, the the trio that refers to themselves as the misfit toys the mm -hmm. the the one cop with the the prosthetic leg who remarks about how like he used to wear this shirt that said f john wayne on it and it was just about how he wanted to be less tender about people seeing him suffering and just give himself that sort of catharsis of recovery and 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 that he is earnestly struggling so Let's talk a little bit about the John Wayne syndrome. Have you both heard of that before? How did you think it manifested with John? What'd you think of it? That was something new. And I'll just like quickly explain it for people who don't know what it is or don't remember from the show. Basically, John Wayne syndrome is a little bit similar to like PTSD in that like the trauma from people who have experienced traumatic things afterwards instead of being upfront with their feelings, they'd rather put on a strong face and just say that they're okay and like not give any indication to how they're really feeling. And I think we see this a lot with John just because in the last episode, like he's talking to the police officer who has a dog to help him. And he like, oh, how are you doing? And the guy says, oh, I'm doing pretty good, which John says all the time. And then John's like, really? Are you actually doing pretty good? Because I say that all the time and I'm not actually doing pretty good. And the guy's like, uh, no, I don't. So you kind of like see John actually kind of break that syndrome for a second and just start to actually be honest with himself for a little bit. But mm -hmm. yeah, I feel like he suffers from that like John Wayne syndrome a lot. And we see him not break or show that he's He's still strong throughout the whole series, but everyone can kind of tell that he's not doing okay. Yeah, I think that also kind of comes to a head in the very end of the season, the scene where he's getting ready to go swim out through the jellyfish and the song. Pretty good by John Prine. Yeah, pretty good by John Prine. That just like this song where the lyrics are all about being pretty good while he's going through some of the most intense and horrifying trauma that he's had for like, the entire show and the irony there that when he finally gets to the boat with James, he doesn't make it as far as he needed to, but James comes farther to get him anyway. And John's just like, Hey, this isn't where he said, but can you please pick me up anyway? <laughs> Even though it's kind of played for laughs, that's like one of the few moments in the show that we genuinely see John admit vulnerability and ask somebody else for help. Yeah. And also when, um, James just says to him it's gonna be okay and just keeps repeating that to him and then John we finally see him smile which may be the first time that he smiled without help from alcohol or drugs 
Right. And even on, talking about that last shot, I mean, it's, it's John saying, cool. And he smiles and he's shivering from the water. And then slowly the sound of the boat like fades out and John's shiver starts to like turn more into kind of just this empty harrowing frown. And then eventually all you hear the waves pressing against the boat and then there's no sound at all. And then it cuts out. And we've already talked a little bit about like where we think the ending was going. Cause there are kind of two, I think there are two sides to it in that John could be, you could be optimistic and say that John's heading more towards the path of recovery, like James who got home and sorted himself out. But then there's the other perspective where maybe he is one of those, I think, uh, I think one of the cops from Milwaukee says this, like he becomes one of those people who breaks and never comes back. So again, where did you guys think it was heading for John? Like realistically and then ideally, maybe. Realistically, uh, maybe more like the cop who whenever he hears a loud noise, he just like either goes into a corner or starts crying. But I'm hopefully like thinking you know maybe he can be like James and actually like start to lead a normal life away from anything else uh I feel like that was a very Bojack Horseman ending to the way that they'll just like end a bunch of episodes on a, a still shot of a character's expression and let you decide what they're thinking and I know George we had some disagreement on this initially because I didn't take it as a very happy ending at first I felt very bummed out about it and I thought it was more ominous than optimistic. I've kind of come around and I still think it could be either one now but one I guess theory I have is the fact that throughout the show whenever a character is like hey cool somebody else will respond with yeah it is cool or in Leslie's case when he like misses the breakfast he goes no it's not cool but the very last line of the show is just John shivering and the guy says you're gonna be okay and he goes cool and then there's no response so is mm. it cool or is it not gonna be cool that's a good note man i didn't even think about that well i didn't really crack it because that just makes it even more confusing like no answer. I've, I've i've speculated for a long time about where i thought a season three could go um and there's one character who i think really solidifies where it could have been and for a while I thought season three would take place in, in Iran because Leslie secures the Denon deal, which opens that John could ultimately go there, even though he's not John Lakeman, there's still a path to Iran. So, but let's talk actually about Leslie's final triumph in his, his return. Cause Maddie, I know you specifically mentioned how much you liked that. I love that because, you know, you see Leslie like have his like, lowest moment of his life uh doing cocaine in AA and then you start to see him like build up again once he's in Europe and then once he gets that affirmation from John saying go get the dead end deal and then he's off and then he goes to the big conference they're having to like fight over the dead end deal and he makes it just in time to be like oh I'm Leslie Claret and he's like you wrote the book on it and everybody starts freaking out about him and he's like, yeah, it's no biggie. And then he starts giving this super big speech, not even about like engineering or anything, just like about 
I feel like basically just with the themes of the show. And then he just basically secures everything, gets the done and deal, and finally has something good happen to him. And it just makes me so happy. Leslie's speech very much seems like the writers had a feeling this could be the last episode of the show. That definitely feels like a series finale type of thing. I also find it funny or interesting how John and Leslie have kind of flip-flop positions in this final episode where Leslie is the one who's messing everything up and unable to like do his job right. And John is the boss who has to come down on him with some tough love and get him to go and secure the deal. Right. There's a, yeah, there's a bunch of lines where they even say that like John is telling him like, you wrote the book, Leslie, go show them. And then Leslie, I think at one point says like, boy, the worm has really fucking turned here. Hasn't it? Oh so, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like, and that just shows the growth that they both had. And, uh, and like you were talking about language, they kind of have a final affirmation where John, with his ripped out teeth, he's saying like, cool. And then Leslie says, yeah, it is cool. And it's just, it's so nice. Let's actually talk about how language is used in this show. We've already mentioned, you know, cool. Yeah, it is cool. Pretty good. Uh, Tom and Bernice both say smoking on the weed. Um, and there's all these other like weird expressions. What are some of the ones that stood out to you both? Oh man, smoking on the weed was a big one. Uh, there's also Dennis and Ed always wondering what's, what's the basis of something. I don't <laughs> know anyone who talks like that, and that always got me. Yeah, they always go, what's the basis of that? Well, <laughs> it's just, they're, the way that they talk, especially too, I feel like there's just like little things in the way that they talk. They're just so playful and like, it's just like two little kids basically wondering things about the world and then going out and doing, I don't know. Oh, there's Dennis. Every time someone points out that he's John's friend, he has to correct him and say, best friend. Yeah, he's like, I'm his best friend, actually. <laughs> and, and then they even, the detectives use that as part of their reasoning when they're trying to discern that when John and Dennis switch their fingers back, with yeah. their swap fingers, you know, uh, get pieces together that a best friend would swap fingers with John. And speaking of a get, a get says so many times, like, concerning like to get kind of a follow-up for a question. And that's kind of a language pattern throughout the show too. Like a character will say something like in the first episode of Birdbath, like I need some American dimes. And they say, they're like, they ask them like, what is a dime? And there's just like always a give and take that's very conversational and curt and short. And I don't know. I, I don't know another show that does that. Oh, we should also talk about um, how Tom and Leslie, whenever those two characters interact, they say each other's name in, I think, like, every single sentence. Yeah. Like, uh, I don't know. Is that a matter of power? Are they trying to get the upper hand on each other? Or is it more of uh, them trying to humanize each other? Yeah, I think that's more of, like, you know, mano-a-mano. Like, they're both, like, these big dad figures, and they're both trying to kind of subtly undermine each other by, like calling each other by their name like well Leslie well Tom actually and I just think they go back and forth like that to kind of one-off each other almost. There's also the fact that Tom always calls Leslie the guy with the girl's name so maybe he's just assuming Leslie has some sort of shame about his name and that by using it a lot that'll kind of get to him. True. I think at fir- the first season like on the duck hunt I think it was sort of a mano a mano thing but I think by the second season think there is a mutual respect when they're talking to one another so i think it goes from the mano mano to more of the the affirming like, like understanding of each other yeah at least that's how i perceived it 
I think I would agree with that. But yeah, I it's um oh there's another one. Characters always describe situations as uh as fucked up, like with yeah. that particular language, like because you're like thinking one of the cops I think particularly says Paris was fucked up, and Ed says that John is all fucked up, and they they say fucked up over and over and over and over again. So that's another one. Do we just make like Maddie have to do like a million bleeps or? Uh... <laughs> I guess the fuck so. <laughs> um i feel like this show i feel like there's certain shows that i notice that they talk in a certain way and that's how you can tell it's a show like with one of my favorite shows gilmore girls like that show is so well known based on like the way that they talk so fast you know everybody knows that's a show where they do they're fast talkers and they're so quippy and i feel like with this show they definitely have their own way of talking where it's just like I don't know. There's this back and forth to it. Yeah. It's another thing that kind of sets John apart from all the bureaucratic people that are kind of controlling his life. Whereas Tom would speak in all these professional terms and Leslie uses all the uh, like engineering jargon and stuff. Uh, John is just very down to earth and realistic and conversational in the way that he views his job. It kind of goes back to the like in season one with him not knowing who Dick Cheney is. It just shows he's even more far removed from the people who are controlling every aspect of his life. With that, I, this is a bit of a tangent, I guess, but we talked about uh, music as a narrative device in season one. And in season one, I think we saw John performing his songs a lot more. But in season two, I think they're much more introspective and like, I don't think they're being publicly shared in the same way they were. So I don't know, like, what, did you both notice any differences about the music and how it was used this season compared to the season one? I thought it was hilarious that they all became like sing-alongs and that there were subtitles this time for all of the lyrics. My personal favorite song, I think, out of every song in the show was the song where they went to the bachelor party and he was just talking about being with his friends and getting drunk and having some fun and it was just such a funny song to listen to and like hear John actually sound excited for something other than compared to his other songs in the season where he was like I'm gonna have to hit this girl 17 times in order to knock her unconscious right yeah and an interesting thing about that song in particular I think is most of John's other songs, unless they've been with Rob, are, you know, they're solo performances. But there's, in, in that song, which I think is called Only Guy With A Tie, available on Prime Music, uh, <laughs> is, uh, you know, there's like, there's harmonies to it. Like there's a female chorus in the background. And in other, in other songs, there's, there's like, there's obviously a guitar company. Yeah, sometimes there's a full band. So the music, I think, had a lot more growth in regards to what it was pushing for and how it was conveyed and also how it matched up with what was going on. Because when John's getting his fingers stitched back on, it's very much like this chaotic sort of rock ballad. So I don't know. I also like the way that they kind of use music to, I guess, make their action scenes stand out from how any other thriller show like this would do it. Like the Guns of Paris episode when they're going to rob the convenience store. The whole build up to that is just songs where in John's head he's singing all of his like expectations for how this is going to go. And then right. a little instrumental while the action scene actually takes place. And it's not like a big orchestral like blockbuster instrumental. It's just this like calm folk music while these horrifying acts of violence take place. And then afterwards, the song comes back in with him describing how nothing went the way it was supposed to. And I don't know, I think this is just a really 
creative way of doing what other shows would just accomplish by having characters say these things out loud and be like, okay, this will be easy. Oh, that wasn't easy. That scene itself is, is just so impressive because it's like a six minute long take that takes them like from the subway system in the underground all the way to a liquor store and then back down. And there's, I wish this this show was celebrated more for its production value and cinematography because like that was a really really cool sequence to watch. Like I can't believe they did that. I think that's actually my favorite scene of this season and I wanted to ask you both what your favorite scene was. Oh man. Well, okay, I think Guns of Paris that is probably my personal favorite episode of the entire show, but as far as favorite scene, honestly, I would say it's the part where uh Dennis is trying to get his fingers sewn back on and Ed is like, oh, hey, I've seen this in movies where like disgraced veterinarians can sew fingers back on. And she goes, I'm not disgraced. And Jack Birdbath goes, oh, I'm disgraced. Maybe I can help. My favorite might be when uh, they get pulled over on the side of the road and Agat's daughter says that they're going to Disneyland. And then uh, Tom has to get out of the car because the police officer is like, get out of the car. Like, and they think that they're done. They're foiled. Everything is done. And then the police officer like starts to give Tom the gun and is like, shoot yourself. And then Tom's like, what? <laughs> and then he's like, shoot yourself. You're going to Disney and you're not going to get the fast pass. Are you crazy? And Ooh. it's the biggest turnaround. Like you think they're over. You think it's like the end of the season. And then bam just because they didn't get the fast pass. <laughs> oh, wait, 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 I changed my mind. My favorite scene is uh, when he asks his mom if he can shoot the accordion pimp. <laughs> yeah, and she's just very quickly like, yes, go ahead. And then he accidentally shoots the boy instead of the pimp, and then... Thank God he only grazed him in the ear, but yeah, that was a very dis- distressing scene when I was like, oh, man. That was so sad. Right. Oh, man. There's There are two characters that we haven't even talked about who I really want to discuss. The first one being, uh, I don't even know his name, the male detective oh, from Luxembourg. Yeah. It's like, I don't want to try and say it in case I say it wrong, it's recorded. We'll call him male detective from Luxembourg. The, this extremely crass, uh, misogynistic, uh, extremely offensive detective who, who considers himself like, every woman's dream and like the ultimate I think verbatim pleasuring machine and how much of a romantic he is but how much he doesn't care about women uh let's talk about him what did you both think of him as like one of the first introductions from this season I think he got exactly the ending he deserved which was to be completely dismissed and wind up having very little impact overall on John actually because we see him putting his case together and getting his like team support and doing all this stuff all over the city. We see him practicing his lines with his gun in the mirror and all that. And then finally the last episode, as they're making their getaway, he just shows up for like five seconds, jumps in the street to stop them. They don't stop. He runs out of the way. The whole sequence is like five seconds and that's all he gets. And you never see him again. And it's so funny to me, just like that him and his like little band of detectives are like the biggest misogynists that you'll ever meet. And they're just like, I don't even know. They're just like comedic relief, I feel like, of the season where they're just like the bumbling fools and the bumbling detectives. Not only that, but there's that entire sequence. This is another one of my favorite scenes, but mostly from how uncomfortable it makes me and the disbelief that they actually did it is where the men are at the urinals 
and their I'm not going to say this word, but their <laughs> things are showing, and they're they're of a microscopic nature, and it is insane to watch. And it is like it's so out of character, and the, and the whole time, it, it cuts from like each character's lines. It cuts to their microscopic thing. Um, instead of like their faces and as they're just talking about how they're the best at like pleasing a woman and like how if like between them and I think with Lakeman it's got to be like a dick measuring contest and it's it's yeah. such a weird scene it kind of like parallels all the season one uh, bathroom conversations at with like all the engineers all the piping I think it's kind of interesting how many teams of three are set up within this show because you have the Luxembourg detective and his two kind of cronies, and that kind of matches the three Milwaukee detectives too. They're after John, and then you have Ed, Dennis, and Jack Birdbath, who uh, call themselves something that I can't say in this episode. <laughs> and then you also you even have like the three Kandahars, and I don't know. It seems like maybe they have something in common, maybe they don't. But every uh, group that's after John seems to be consisted of three like this. I guess you could even add like uh, a get Sophie and non maybe the three detectives. Yeah. Yeah. I, I guess that just speaks to the shows. You know, we're talking about, you talk about symmetry a lot and how there's a lot of parallels and, uh, you know, even looking again at the side of the, the Patriot, like how there's two sides and all these different parallels. I don't, two and three don't add up, but yeah. It's it's a cool it's a cool thing to notice. I did also oh the second character I want to bring up was Bernice. We talked a little bit about her earlier on, but Bernice is the character that I have one of the hardest times reading because at times she she mentions that she's there because her kid's in jeopardy and that she's very concerned for John. But then she has no trouble at all like lying to a get in the season finale and is also pretty cutthroat when Ed is expressing kind of remorse over what happened. Like she kind of cuts the conversation and goes to, well, it's still an important day. And she threats again later on. And what did you think of Bernice this season? I thought it was funny that Tom was terrified of her and John was not at all. Yeah. Like Tom was like, you talk to your mother, you let her know. And then we meet Bernice and I like her just because she's like a powerhouse of a woman and like really just like took charge just because she is like, isn't she like the director? No, secretary or something. Yeah, the secretary of transportation. And then I liked the bits with her and Ichabod. Those made me happy. <laughs> yeah, the, the most, uh, one of my other favorite scenes, I think was also where she and Alice are talking about like, what it gets intentions are with Mina and how Mina's kind of being weaponized. But it's just, yeah, Bernice is a very cool character and I'm really glad that they brought her into the mix this season. Cause yeah, like I liked her, but I was also very intimidated by her in a way that I think Tom was intimidating as well with just a little bit of foreboding. Yeah. A little bit of like unknown because you don't completely know everything about her right. as well as we know as like the other characters. It almost seems like, she could very easily have had like a heel turn and become a bigger antagonist than Tom if the writers wanted. What's a good note? I think that's very true. That's very true. We talked a little bit about just where the series was going, but I guess to kind of sum everything up, looking back at the, the, the only two seasons of Patriot, season one, we talked a little bit about what that was about. And season two, we've already talked a, lot, a little bit about what that theme was. But overall, 
What do you think this series was saying? This is a big question. This is a big question. George, what do you think this season <laughs> was saying? I think it's, the, it's similar to season one in just that, you know, life is extremely complicated, which sounds like a bit like the dumbest logline for a, a theme. But, you know, season one, we're talking about like how nothing and no one is straightforward. And then this season's all about how you need support and you have these basic needs that you need to fulfill in order to heal and grow and live. And I think this show is, for me, this is one of the most like life affirming shows I've ever seen, even though it's extremely dark and has a very bleak sense of humor at times. It's, it's very much from, from its language to its tone, to how it incorporates music and family all within this package of espionage with engineering thrown in at the side it's you know the semantics aside at its core i think it's a show about like connection and and love and i don't know persistence and i think that's really really special to me i have to agree with that just because i go back to like the very first episode and i think of that conversation between edward and john where edward is just like it's simple it's just a to b and then John goes, well, it's never that simple. And I feel like that really set the tone for the rest of the show, that actions have consequences. And if you do one thing, a million other things in that person's life can get disrupted. Right. And it's just like everything is complicated. But then again, like what you said with the second season, it's really just like accepting help is really truly where you get things done. And that's like kind of where you get your strength from. Because I feel like if John didn't have the strength from his friends and his family, then he would have just crumbled and spiraled way before we got even close to a second season. One thing I took away is people always describe the journey to making yourself happy as being from point A to point B. Like, oh, you just need to stop being sad and start being happy. Right. And yeah, just like John's mission and all this show shows that that's clearly not always a straight line and it's a lot more complicated than that you can't just suddenly start doing everything that will make you happy and expect it to work right and and i think furthermore that not everything has well like we just said not everything has a resolution yeah much in the way that this show kind of leaves on an ambiguous note there are many plot lines that are you know like where the characters are searching for catharsis you know be it leslie with his son or john with uh the detective Nan and the mouse earrings where efforts are made to reconcile and sometimes they're, they just hit a wall and it's, you know, it's kind of left undone or left for a later time, but that doesn't stop the progress of the characters trying to still become better people and more fulfilled people. And yeah, actually on that note, is there anything else you both would like to say about Patriot either season one or season two? I didn't know dream deprivation was a thing until I watched this show. That's crazy. Yeah, I definitely will be re-watching this show and making others watch this show as well. So very happy that you made me watch this show, George. <laughs> cool. It well, is great. cool. It is cool. Well, great. I think on that note, we'll tie it up all here. Patriot is streaming on an Amazon Prime video. It's two seasons, 18 episodes. It is well worth your time. Though the show has ended, uh, the creators are still producing new content together. Most of the cast of Patriot returns in a show called Perpetual Grace Limited, um, which is streaming on Epics right now. And I know they've talked a little bit about other plans for maybe a spinoff book about Leslie's book, The Structural Dynamics of Flow, 
and some other songs maybe with the creator, Stephen Conrad, and the guy who plays John. So hopefully this isn't the end of Patriot content, but I'm really glad that the three of us experienced it together. And any final words to the audience today? Oh, the overall goal is uh, for this podcast to get enough people to go and watch the show that, uh, that we can get a, <laughs> another season. So if you want to make uh, us three lovely voices that you're hearing very, very happy people, go support the show. Yes. And I would like to say friendship. That is all. <laughs> Insert sparkle noises here. Yeah. Well, great. <laughs> Thank you all so much for listening. Uh, we had a great time talking about this show. And for all things music and TV, keep you here at Social Night. And for all things, well, yeah, for all things music, keep you here at Impact 89 FM.